Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, and if you use the code PARPOLBRO15 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 15% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com, because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that always has an energy crisis going on, but I think that might just be middle age. I'm Tiernan Duyebin this week as Prime Minister and the sound of a trumpet being thrown into a pond but made human, Boris Johnson, has decided to go on holiday in the midst of shortages and rising gas prices. Maybe he just misinterpreted all of us telling him to please, please go away. As the Prime Minister gave a speech to the Conservative conference last week, well, if you can call 40 minutes of complete babble speech when had a three-year-old express such incoherent tasks you'd be worried about their cognitive development. As he did that, one of the many sentences where you could have replaced the words with just a list of things you can see in front of you right now and it'd still have the same level of meaning, was about how the party are investing in skills, skills, skills. Saying it three times into a room of Tory delegates that look like a hall of mirrors sadly doesn't just make those skills appear. Which means we have to ask, exactly what are these skills that the government are investing in when there's so clearly an absence of any sort of expertise from anyone in the cabinet? None of them have a clue about anything, know where anything is, none of them are able to say the right thing at the right time, they all send money to completely the wrong places, they can't tell the truth and they don't do their job. Maybe we need to be a bit more supportive here, because to be quite so shit in everything you need to be good at is in itself a skill. Take the Prime Minister, though sadly before you get a chance he'll probably have gone on holiday. But he has the incredible power of being able to go away at the least convenient moments. If he was part of the X-Men, with his superhero name being something like Lump or Shitwagon, they would charge into battle against a foe like Magneto, only to find that Shitwagon left for a cruise round the Caribbean that morning. Though, arguably, they'd probably be quite relieved. It currently feels like National Crisis Week in the UK. Energy prices are going through the roof, which makes you wish they'd had it insulated years ago. A shortage of workers means pig farmers have had to cull tons of boars, though sadly I mean livestock, not MPs. Yes, they were going to be killed anyway, and as a vegetarian I'm confused as to why it's sad to kill them one way and not another way. Is it less honourable or something? I mean, if I was a pig and the choice was a cremation, or eaten and then shat out of someone, I know what I'd go for. I'm just saying. 
Sorry, I mean energy price crisis, pig deaths, there's still a fuel shortage in many places, only 27 HGV drives have applied for the temporary visa scheme the government have offered, so I'm reckoning that every single EU country is sending one person that they just really, really wanted to get rid of. Uh, There's a food shortage in many other places around the country, and so where is the Prime Minister? Well, that's right, in a private villa in Marbella, like the world's most expensive panic attack. It's a skill Johnson has honed for years, though. I mean, when he was mayor of London, he refused to return from holiday during the riots in 2011. Uh, He was away for two weeks at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 after he referred to it as the new swine flu, although it's turned out it's him that's killed pigs in the end. He was away in Scotland while all the A-level results went wrong, and then he was away while the Taliban took over Afghanistan, and now again this week. So it's not so much taking back control, is it, as actively running away from control and really hoping that by the time you come back, someone else will have sorted it out. It's the sort of behaviour of someone who's never had to check if everything's unplugged or all the gas hobs are turned off before heading to the airport, because for Johnson he's either had a lackey to do that for him, or it's all burned down and he's not given a shit and he's blamed it on someone else for not having the wherewithal to stop him having a gas cooker in the first place when he's clearly unable to use a microwave without causing some sort of mini Chernobyl. We've all rushed work to get it done just before we go away on holes, right? And maybe that explains why so much of the Prime Minister's speech sounded like he wrote the first few words himself and then just hit the autocomplete suggestions until he'd filled the word count. He once again talked about the 48 new hospitals they're building, which they aren't building, unless they're virtual hospitals that you can look around by putting a headset on in the new cupboard they have built in an existing hospital that still needs funding. Johnson announced a £3,000 bonus scheme to send teachers to struggling areas after they've already cut a £5,000 bonus scheme to do exact same, and yet still called it levelling up. I mean, God forbid we ever reach the end level where you'll be given, I don't know, £5 and a knife to teach 12 schools at once in areas where the kids are fed only on a diet of past teachers. The Prime Minister did the usual slamming of everyone in North London, presumably because they all thought he was a wanker to have as a neighbour and he's never got over it. And there was a really weird bit about how if you can steal a dog or a cat, then there's no limit to your depravity. Well, it says quite a lot that Johnson has truckloads of dead cats he leaves everywhere then. Of course, there was no mention of what it means if you let thousands of pigs get incinerated, but maybe his speech was too full of unwanted spam already. It all resembled a drunk uncle demanding to make a speech at a wedding they weren't invited to, and really the only good thing you could say about it was that it didn't last that long. In fact, it ended quite abruptly, as though his phone had simply run out of suggestions and started to be aware of just what it had done. One of the Waste of Trees had the headline the next day of Iron Man Boris, and I guess actually that Boris Johnson is like Iron Man, in that he's also a rich, womanising, likely heavy drinker who works with the arms industry and has a dad who's a massive twat. The only difference is at least Tony Stark isn't thick, has a cool suit of armour and goes some way to redeeming himself, while Johnson would probably just put a bucket on his head and then go on holiday again. The only bit of his speech we can glean any sense from was his insistence that the government are dealing with the biggest issues in the country, by which I can only assume he meant dealing in a gambling way. Actually, that's not quite right. Uh, there was a sentence where he said, when I was lying in St Thomas's Hospital last year, so that bit was correct, but sadly he didn't point out all the other times and places he wasn't telling the truth as well. We must see people back in the office, was another bit, before once again within a few days going on holiday and avoiding the office. Maybe the idea is that if you're all too busy travelling into work and staring into the void at your desk, then you won't notice that the Prime Minister isn't even in the country again. It could be that Johnson's skills, or whatever the national version of close-up magic distraction techniques are, only he hasn't yet worked out the sightlines, and we're all very aware it's a shit trick that won't fool anyone. Not only that, but we'd be far more impressed if he just worked on actually making the cards that we want to appear appear, or plucking coins from thin air and then, then spending them on social care. All the Conservatives have been wanting you to go back to work this week. It seems to have been their trend, with Domokun's unwell, Ian Duncan Smith, barking on in one of the shit rags that in the 1940s people still went to the office, even when Hitler's bombs were raining down. Well, for a start, Ian, they didn't. Uh, They went to air raid shelters as soon as the sirens went off because they weren't fucking idiots. And secondly, they didn't have the internet, otherwise everyone almost certainly would have stayed at home, but also had to spend most of their working day clicking I'm safe on Facebook, which would have been exhausting. Considering Ian Duncan Smith is known mostly for making the life of people with disabilities so, so much harder because of his demands for people to be fit for work, you think he'd be all for a society where more can work as the accessibility of their own home will be far greater than many an office block. But then maybe he's using himself as an example as he lives in a mansion that he didn't pay for and does absolutely fuck all except hallucinate that he's lived through World War II. Five people were arrested after Ian Duncan Smith was allegedly hit on the head with a traffic cone outside the Conservative conference last week, though I wonder if those people were just returning to their job of warning everyone around of a total danger. 
maybe Johnson's skill is riddles. You know, like those used to ploy Batman or to foil heroes in ancient Greece. I mean, what greater riddle than demanding everyone go back to the office while at the same time decrying that it isn't his job to fix all the problems business face? Or that a four-day week won't happen in the UK because, well, because, well, they don't control business and also, I guess they can't have everyone on the same timetable as Parliament. So is it that business has to do things or is it that they can't tell business to do things? Which door is lying or which door is telling the truth or most likely also lying but more? If it isn't the Prime Minister's job to fix the problems facing businesses, which are all specifically problems that he's also caused, then whose job is it? Do we all now need to hire someone whose job is simply to clean up after Boris Johnson like a sort of janitor for Britain? Maybe they could just follow him around mopping up and while he's away on holiday for most of the year, take care of all the maintenance. Maybe the way to deal with a future of endless Conservative governments is that at the same time we also vote for another government who kind of act as their carers, like a very literal nanny state. Unfortunately, the only janitor we do have in charge while Johnson's away is Lord Chancellor and man who always looks like he's trying to escape being encased in alien goo, Dominic Raab, who clearly only got the job of Deputy Prime Minister after showing that he too can go on holiday when most needed, as he did over the summer. Rob showed his leadership skills during an interview last week when he failed to understand what the word misogyny meant, claiming it was bad whether it's a man against a woman or a woman against a man. Yeah, nice one, Dom. You've really got it there. But I suppose it must be hard for him to understand a hatred or contempt for someone based on their sex rather than what he does, which is because they're poor. He was being questioned on it because it's yet another area that the government are doing absolutely nothing about, with the Prime Minister previously saying that the police won't prosecute for cases of misogyny as it had overload them. Yes, I suppose it would, as if it was an arrestable offence, it would mean there'd only be three police officers left and they'd have to do everything. Meanwhile, Foreign Secretary and Equalities Minister Liz Truss, who is living proof that a human can survive without sentient thought, has pushed through £183 million of cuts to women and equalities aid groups, as though she thought her job was just to make those areas worse. Maybe she just thinks that's levelling up, and the only true way to equality is to make everyone have as shit a time as possible regardless. Universal credit was cut on the same day as Johnson's speech, meaning many families will see a loss of thousands and thousands in their income. But I suppose, how else will they get levelled up to the point where they have to apply for the upcoming government nationwide Squid Games proposals? There's going to be a household support fund of £500 million for vulnerable families over the winter to replace not quite all the money for vulnerable families that they've just cut. It's very much a handing them a warm coat while demolishing their home. Work and Pensions Secretary, and like if Roz from Monsters Inc. fucked a hairy toadstool, Teresa Kofi, was filmed singing Time of My Life at the Conservative Conference karaoke session just as the UC Uplift Cup came into force, which feels like a very poor, tactless choice of song indeed, but I suppose it'd be an admittance of the damage she's caused if Kofi had gone for hungry eyes. Also at the party conference, it's been reported that BBC political editor and woman with an expression that looks like she's always thinking about an animal dying in an Attenborough show, Laura Kunzberg, allegedly faced off against the creature inside that guy's head in Men in Black, Michael Gove, in a rap battle. People are saying this proves a lack of impartiality in the BBC's reporting because how can you be non-partisan when you're partying with the people you're meant to be objective to? But I say based on Michael Gove's rapping and what I imagine Kunzberg's to be like, you'd only make someone hear that if you really fucking hated them. To be fair to the Prime Minister, that'd make me want to get on a plane and fly almost anywhere else too. The crises are likely to keep coming due to price rises and even more shortages due to Brexit issues, not to mention a possible Covid resurgence and knowing our luck, Godzilla or something and then we'll discover that the government had invited him to speak at the CO26 conference about how to be green or something. But does this mean that Johnson is just going to keep going on holiday? Will there come a point where Johnson is only in the UK for two days a year, once to give a speech at the annual conference, where he'll say increasingly vague things until it's just him shouting wibble, wibble, wibble into a microphone as idiots applaud, and then the second to perform some sort of stunt around a three-word slogan that isn't true, like careering a train into a job centre and shouting back on track or something like that? The rest of the time, all we'll get are messages from Johnson sent by telegram or washed up in a bottle on the beach from his villa owned by whichever friend gained a peerage for being a piece of shit that year, and it'll simply read, go back to work, even if there isn't any. And of course, the Conservatives will go up in the polls again, as that's what their voters want, while the people who hate them will be over the moon, they just mostly don't have to see or hear from the Prime Minister ever again. In other news, walking landslide Lord Frost is going to press the European Union for changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol that, yes, it is worth saying again, Lord Frost created, signed and said was great. We do have to wonder if the Lord Frost that signed the agreement was indeed the same Lord Frost we see now, or if the current one had been imprisoned in a cell with an iron mask on while his evil twin wrecked havoc. 
Or more likely, the agreement was signed by Frost and Johnson in the hope they could just get Brexit done and then fix it later, which is, as you know, totally how legal contracts work. I mean, you just sign that Apple terms and conditions and then weeks later give them a call and I'm sure old Tim Cook would just say all that music and content is now defo yours. The EU is publishing plans on Wednesday that will hopefully allow for people in Northern Ireland to get sausages from Britain, even though all our pigs have now taken part in a hog version of Backdraft and so there won't be any. Still, Lord Frost looks like the sort of man that if you told him he could have sausages, he'd be quiet for at least two to three hours gleefully until he realised that a former version of himself had married someone he didn't like. During Johnson's conference speech, he said Lord Frost is the greatest Frost since the Great Frost of 1709. And I suppose just like that, his influence will also cause people to die from a lack of heat and food. Home Secretary and woman who spends a sunny day trying to get her shadow deported, Pretty Patel, is supporting an initiative by BT for an app that protects women travelling alone by tracking them, you know, like a stalker would. Maybe stalkers have some sort of code amongst themselves whereby you can't stalk someone who's already being stalked and so BT have decided to be everyone's creep in the name of safety. For it to work, the person can either enter their estimated journey time on the app or text it to 888, which is also the name of a gambling company, a great way to instill confidence in anyone who's really not keen on betting their chances of safety. The helpline is going to cost £50 million, which probably means it's being set up by Pretty Patel's uncle or something, and in reality will only cost 20 quid to make. It'll be ready by Christmas, which is handy for everyone who by then will need to be wandering around at night in search of food. Speaking of safety, the Met Police have added to their protections for the public by saying they're no longer looking into allegations against flob of uncooked dough, Prince Andrew, which means if you see him in public and feel unsafe, you're advised to ask him if he's really a prince or to try to wave down a pizza express for help. Education Secretary and Grumpy Peanut Nadim Zawahi says he'll tackle pupil absences head on, so I'm excited that we'll soon see him prancing around the streets dressed as the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Or maybe they'll appoint Prince Andrew to do it, as he already has all those skills in place. Health Secretary and King of Having a Smile That Looks Like It Hurts to Do, Sajid Javid, has said that people should turn to their family first, not the state, for health and social care. A great bonus for anyone with doctors in their family, and less so for mine, who'll now have to do my twice-annual HBA1 diabetic blood tests using absolutely whatever's in the kitchen. Covid is still killing over 100 people a day in the UK, but not if we don't talk about it, right? Sorry, I mean, what Covid? What is that? The red travel list has been cut to just seven countries, meaning you can now travel all over the place without having to quarantine on your return and therefore be able to give airborne souvenirs to everyone you meet. Isn't that nice? Liz Trust says the changes will allow people to exercise personal responsibility. I had no idea you had to exercise it. I guess that's why the government is so flabby on all their obligations. And Labour leader and sound of an aircon that you only notice when someone points it out and then it's constantly annoying, Keir Starmer, said during a tour around the Kellogg's factory that his nickname at school was Special K. And that does actually scan, as Special K the cereal is very low in fibre, which means just like the Labour leader, it's a constant strain with no end results and having retained a lot of shit that no one wants. Hey, 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 there you are, and indeed, here I am. Uh, God, it was a hard episode to write about this week, you know, without just repeating myself. The Prime Minister did more lies than went on holiday again. There's still a shortage of everything. And then the owner of the politics news was James Brokenshire dying, which, look, despite his politics, that was still a bit sad, uh, in it, when someone dies young, so I haven't done jokes about that. Um, there are tricky lines to balance on, I have to say, because undoubtedly, by being a Conservative MP, it means he will have voted for many policies that will have definitely killed people. But at the same time, still feels cold and disrespectful to even be talking about his death at all. That's weird, isn't it? Weird, that. I don't know what that is. Uh, Some sort of decency, maybe. I don't know. I think it's probably just now that I'm in that very middle-aged bit of my life where anyone dying reminds me of my own crashing mortality. And then I spend ages thinking about what music I should have at my funeral um, and how it's basically impossible to beat an answer that Frankie Boyle once gave in an interview um, where he put the track, If You Don't Know me by now bastard that is just too good always jealous of that uh in completely the other way uh that story about laura kunzberg and the other bbc journalist partying with tories um both makes me feel a bit vomity in my mouth also quite unsurprised and weirdly at the same time i've got to put all my cards on the table coming from the comedy industry where for example you spend all Edinburgh Fringe absolutely hating all the critics and all the PR people and all the industry people and then you end up having drinks with them all at the end as some sort of weird cathartic release so I do sort of understand it um, in a way not that I think I could have a drink with Michael Gove as I'd be too busy retching to actually have any and calling him a prick but Obviously, there's also major issues with news and political reporting and the control the government have over the media, which is very different to, say, uh, me just having a a drink with the bloke from Chortle. But I'm just saying, 
I've definitely had a drink with some complete shits, uh, especially if they were buying. Basically, I think we're all complicated, uh, except for some people who are awful. Oh, God, am I an awful one? Maybe I am. Fuck's sake. This is, this life is hard, isn't it? Working out life. Bloody hell. Look, um, thanks for being here and all that once again. And there's not really much to say this week in this little admin bit, um, apart from a regular call out um, of please can you help me with some interviewees? It is a lot of work to track down people uh, to interview at the moment. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe that's everyone sort of getting back into work vibes and life vibes and the fact that October makes no one want to get out of bed at all. Um, But I'm not getting many replies at all for anything. So if you have any ideas, particularly just of subjects to talk to people about, and then I can do researching on the Googles, that would be great. Um, I'm currently trying to track down someone to talk to me about Afghanistan right now. Obviously, I'm going to have climate change stuff for when the uh, CO26 is on. But otherwise, I can't think of what I've not yet covered or I need to cover again. Um, If you have sent in suggestions, I'm aware loads of you have done and I haven't got those people on the show. And that is either because you need to stop suggesting terrible people! Um, or more likely, and actually really, um, it's because you've suggested someone who's too busy to talk to me and just don't reply to my emails, or maybe I've had something a bit too similar on recently. There's always a good reason, all right? There's always a good reason. But normally it's because they don't fucking get back to me. So stop that. Send other ideas, please. Or maybe just send subjects that I can find people myself or you are just gonna have to suffer more episodes where it's just me telling you about times where i've had drinks with bastards and no one wants that also i can't remember a lot of those times as i was very drunk so ideas please to the usual addresses or ad trousers thank you and also uh, this week, a big apology to um, Eleni, who rightly pointed out on Twitter that I said in last week's episode, the Welsh Assembly, which is, isn't called that anymore. They don't assemble. That's just for Avengers and uh, primary school children, obviously. Um, they are now the Welsh government or the Senate. Um, I am so sorry, all of you Welsh listeners. Um, I will at some point in the next few weeks uh, call the British government the or British Parliament, uh, the British Assembly, just as penance. I'll probably forget. I'm putting this in now and then I'll completely forget. Sorry. Oh, and uh, thanks to all of you on the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro site. Uh, you're all still great and your hair looks lovely slash swish. And those of you that are still doing the Kofi, even though I don't plug it anymore, check you and your memories out. Thanks for that. Um, right, on this week's show, uh, many time podcast John Elledge is back. Um, as in order to plug his book about actually fun things, I made him talk to me about awful politics things. And in the middle, there's a very pointless Brexit fallout just for you. I spoil you. I bloody spoil you. <laughs> Conference season is over. Well, apart from the Green Party, but I guess they just use up whatever time is left uh, free. So, you know, there's no waste. But we've had all the big speeches from Labour with their serious plan for government that seems to mostly be about saying it's a serious plan and telling people who used to vote for them not to bother anymore. And then the Conservatives and their build back better bollocks, which is made worse by them having dismantled society over the last decade before now insisting it's it's them that's going to fix it again. Although we all know full well the Conservatives will just put several bits on upside down and at the end there'll be a bag of leftover parts that we were all very certain were essential. And the Lib Dems, uh, well... I don't know, it was online in the idea of more Zoom meetings, only this time hosted by Lib Dem leader and police photo fit of a wheelie bin that's gone missing, Ed Davey, is no one's idea of a good weekend, is it? The SNP also did theirs online using a platform called Hopin, as I guess many were that it'd actually work, and many were that it wouldn't, so they could watch something they actually enjoyed. And then there was a Reform UK one, but you could recreate that by making several loud fart noises and then punching yourself in the face. But apart from political posturing, empty slogans and a place for journalists to get drunk with the people they're pretending to be impartial about, what exactly did we learn from any of the conferences? Apart from maybe how long the Prime Minister can talk for without saying anything of substance or further proof that Michael Gove dances like a dead slug being waved about by a child. Well, the answer is probably not very much really, but despite that, I asked John Elledge to come on the podcast and talk about what not much we did learn anyway. John writes many a political piece for the New Statesman, Guardian and a ton of other places, but also has just recently released a really actually very fun book called The Compendium of Not Quite Everything, All the Facts You Didn't Know You Wanted to Know, which I have been really, really enjoying reading. It's got very little to do with politics and is instead a collection of fascinating facts and trivia about life, the universe and everything. So I thought what better way to promote his book than by asking about all the facts we know we don't really want to know about the 2021 party conferences. So we had a nice natter about that. 
Oh, I should say, uh, in the background of John's podcast, there is the sound of occasional hoovering. Uh, John uh, said to me, um, it should be quite easy to remove that. Turns out he didn't realise how rubbish I am at tech. But if anything, I find it quite calm and zen. Or maybe you can just pretend that Keir Starmer is constantly talking in the background. Uh, anyway, I hope you enjoy. Here is John. Uh, John, I am really enjoying your book, uh, The Compendium of Not Quite Everything, and it is such a joyful, like, just little facts where they've all been making me just laugh and smile and feel interested, apart from the one about Like of the Dog, which made me really sad. But other than that, it is, it's such a lovely book, but I'm, I'm sad to say that I've got you on the podcast this week to talk about politics, which is thoroughly unenjoyable right now. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, I was reading your book and then watched Boris Johnson's speech yesterday, which felt like the absolute opposite of... Uh, <laughs> of reading joyful facts to see something that was complete nonsense with absolutely no facts in it whatsoever. Oh, but you, you say this, but I do think there is an interesting parallel. With, like, I was watching Boris Johnson's speech thinking he is speaking in a parallel universe. Yeah. He's like, he's describing this world in which there are no food and petrol shortages, in which wages are going up, in, in which like there are some that uplands are just around the corner. And, and you know, that nobody is talking about cutting uh, a tenth of the income of like a million households with like millions of kids in them, which is exactly what the government is doing, doing as we speak for the universal credit cuts. It's a, so, so you're saying that like you, you felt like this whiplash from going from like a joyful book to, to depressing political reality. I kind of felt that just watching that one bloody speech. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's, I suppose if we if we choose to watch it as though it's you know multiverses are very big, aren't they, across uh, all the cinematic realms? Yeah. If we choose to watch things like the conferences as though we're viewing another multiverse, then it might be. I mean, unfortunately, there's there's a reality to what <laughs> which makes me sad. But yeah. I think if we could pretend that uh, Doctor Strange has caused this, you know, it might be. It might be okay. Um, I mean, where where do you sort of feel we are now? I know we've got the the Green Party conference yet to come, but we we've had. All the main ones, I sort of, I think I missed, Lib Dems was online, so I didn't really see any of that. Yeah, they did a virtual Lib Dem one this year, uh, which is probably good. It's like when, when, when you let all the Lib Dems get in a room together, bad things tend to happen. <laughs> um, so it's probably good to, to, to keep them apart from one I another. Mean, um, I don't know, when's S&P? Have they had, they had theirs in September, it's, I think, but I, I don't, again, I didn't really ah, okay. uh, hear, I don't remember it, which is, is probably really slacking for somebody who does a political podcast. It sort of it went past yeah. me. So I only really paid any attention to, to the Labour and Conservatives, uh, both of which I haven't really enjoyed paying any attention to. No, I mean, it's been it's a pretty bleak time. I normally love conference season, I have to say, which is partly because there's, there's, there's something wrong with me, um, but also because normally... Um, when I worked at the, the New Statesman for six years and I used to, I used to go to both conferences. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of fun if you're there because there's a sense of chaos that I would, I mean, the way I would justify it to myself and my bosses was, I will go, can I go and learn where things stand in the policy debates? And I will sit in fringe meetings and I will get stories out of them and I will find out what people are saying about housing and transport and local governments and all these things. But actually, it's just a really good excuse to go and get drunk with your mates. Um, uh, and and have slightly random conversations with very drunk MPs that make make great anecdotes later, um, uh, and find out incredibly libelous stories you can never write up. So normally, normally I absolutely I absolutely love this time of year. This year I didn't get organised in time to actually sort of uh, be able to go, um, and and watching it on television, it's just like wow, it's actually really bleak, isn't it? It's just like a bunch of like. <laughs> a bunch of senior politicians standing up on stages and lying to us. It's much less fun when there isn't free wine. It's really what I'm saying here. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know what to really ask you about this, but you, you were in the journalist, political journalist world. And I don't know if you've seen the tweet that's going around talking about Laura Kunzberg singing at the karaoke and Lewis Goodall. And, and it... I mean, it's as someone who's removed from that world, that seems so horrible to me because I feel like what the Conservatives is doing right now is so grim that the idea that you just sort of ignore all that to have a party with them feels, I don't know, I don't know, it feels like there should be barriers there, but I guess we ignore that in the usual world of conferences that there aren't, are there? Yeah, I mean, it is, I do think it's sometimes a difficult thing to navigate. I do think the way you, at that kind of level, which is a completely different like I'm, I'm, I'm basically an upstart shouting blogger. I've never had the kind of access that someone like Kunzberg would have. Um, but to kind of get to the level where, like, you know, the top three or four politicians in the country will literally tell you what they're thinking on any given day 
you probably do kind of need to become their friends a little bit because you know so much political journalism is gossip that's that's how it works I I don't think it's a great it's not a great look though is it for the BBC's political editor to be to be obviously having fun and enjoying the company of these people but I think it's I, I if anything I I have less of an issue with that than I do with the way um not not just not just because a couple of the very senior broadcast journalists run their Twitter feed where they just sort of seem to put out what what politicians have have told them uncritically like. They don't. They don't put it in context as you know. This politician has told me this, but obviously they might have reasons to be lying about this. They just say it. They just say word is that, and and you know some 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 politicians have worked out how to game that, and that you can kind of get messages out there by by telling uh, senior political journalists things that are maybe not always entirely true, and so so I I have much greater concerns. About about the way their social media, these journalists' social media presence is being used, than they do about the fact they might have gone to a party with some of these guys, you know. Yeah, that's fair. I I I mean, it is. It does feel like it's one of the, and it's something actually talked about a lot on, on this podcast. But it, it's one of the things that really concerns me. Like for example, the, the Conservative conference. Uh, there's been a lot of references to how the last ten years wages have been declining, and not one person's gone. But you were in charge. <laughs> you, it's been you. You have been in charge the last ten years. That's all your fault. You know. I I sort of I, f- I really feel like that's that's the glaring omission from almost every interview that I've seen. It's incredible, isn't it? I, I mean, I kind of understand why Boris Johnson wants to see the world that way because you know he. I've always got the sense for Johnson that he doesn't entirely believe that other people exist. Like it's just <laughs> like, like there's this there's this kind of stage of, of of psychological development that kids go through between the ages of like four and five called theory of mind, where where they sort of realise that other people exist and have wants and desires that are just as real as theirs. Um, and they're not just kind of like there is a difference between like you know another person and a piece of furniture, and I just sometimes get the impression that Boris missed that stage, and he still <laughs> thinks that everyone else is just kind of like a bit of set dressing for his own ambition. So I can kind of see why he thinks the government didn't really count until he turned up. I can't entirely see why the British media is kind of not calling him out on this. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I find it constantly frightening how having a three and a half year old makes me understand the government so much more at nearly everything they do. It's, it, there's a lot of conversations I have with my daughter that are very similar, but they change tangent constantly, or they, or they just very demanding unnecessarily. I mean, or had forgotten what you'd said two minutes before. I mean, it's very much the same. I think uh, there's a lot to learn there. Um, I mean, how do you, you know, if 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 you could find any policies in in the last two conferences anywhere. You know, is there anything that's being said or done that that, that means that, that there's any hope on the landscape? I mean, is it just looking? I mean, I, I sort of personally feel like I, I'm quite feeling quite politically going back to political apathy again uh, myself. I, I think after listening to a lot of it, but you know, how how have you sort of interpreted it? Are you are you feeling remotely positive about anything? I mean, I think you're right. It wasn't there wasn't much policy on on show, was there? But I don't know how much there. Is there normally that much policy on the main stage? A lot of it happens in fringe meetings, which for, for those who haven't haven't had the pleasure of going to to a party conference will be like in a round table or panel debates um, in in smaller rooms with like audiences measured in you know up to a hundred rather than the entire uh, rather than everyone who's in the conference gives some big speeches, um, and they're often. That, that, and they'll often be like not just politicians, but you know think tankers, business leaders, and so on, like talking about here are the problems we're facing, how can we solve them? Um, and and to get people through the through the doors of these things, they tend to offer like you know the standard you know cheap white wine and beige buffet arrangement. Um, but often the more interesting policy stories kind of come out of those because nobody people don't care about normal people don't care about policy. They want the world to get better, um, but nobody. Uh, nobody who isn't like already actively political cares about exactly how we're going to make sure there isn't there are enough houses. For example, they just want they just want to be able to get a house. They don't care about things like land use policies or, or the exact ins and outs of of welfare reform. You know, it's and and so politicians do not tend to sort of go go big on this. Um, I do think there is a difference between the two two parties in this one. Though I think like. I think Labour is getting it wrong by having actually t- 
too many properties. They've got so many ideas floating around and they keep launching new things that, that none of them are sinking in. Like I, they're launching a new policy every 20 minutes and so nobody can remember what any of them are. Um, and actually in opposition, it kind of makes more sense to kind of pick two or three big things and just keep hammering them so that everybody associates the Labour Party with these two or three things, whatever they may be. Um, whereas I think the, the, the Boris Johnson's speech really was almost completely devoid of policy. Like he <laughs> didn't talk about any of the problems we face. He didn't talk about how the government was going to solve them. It was just a sort of string of a string of, of jokes, basically, um, to kind of fire up the fire up the party faithful. Um, and that it, it's quite difficult to judge how it's gone down on that basis because. It doesn't seem to like like there was some polling out from from I think YouGov one of the big pollsters um, showing that actually Keir Starmer's speech had been a bigger hit with the general public, which really takes some doing given what snooze fest it was. <laughs> it was ninety um, minutes long, Jesus! Oh Christ. God, yeah, and it's like <laughs> uh, and then uh, with 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 like a couple of very flat jokes. He can't tell a joke, can he, Paul? But no, he no. can't. He has no comic timing whatsoever. Um, but yeah, but like. Boris Johnson's speech was uh, was actually less popular with the public than that. But was it was it aimed at them, or was it aimed at a very small slice of the electorate who are the ones that the party that the government needs to keep on side? And so it can be quite difficult to judge these things. I think it's. I mean, it, it just seemed it sort of seemed to me that the, the Conservatives' entire sort of stance is to ignore anything that's going on. I know we sort of mentioned that with, with the alternate reality, but it seems to just be ignore anything that's going on, ignore what people need and just plough ahead. And the, uh, Labour's, I, I don't know, I still, I know that you say they're sort of releasing up policies, but to me it still seems very nothingy. And I know we're sort of concerned when someone says they've got a serious plan, I'm I, I sort of not sure that it is. When you feel the need to say that something is serious, <laughs> it's, you know, it's sort of making up for the fact that there's not much there. Um, and, and I just, you know, I, I think um, it's, it's something I know you've written about, but my concern, I'm still a sort of, I'm not that youngish at all anymore, really. I'm very much middle-aged. But I, I feel like there's a whole generation of people that are being massively ignored by everything uh, at the moment and are really, you know, wages decreasing, housing's becoming worse. I mean, are we not just going to see a, a, there's got to be a, a tipping point coming where there's going to be half the population that don't want to vote for anyone? I mean, I think this is, I mean, I think we're around the same age, roughly. I think like in that I'm having a similar thing of like this person that still thinks of myself as young and then thinks of my actual age. It's like, no, no, really not. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but but, yeah. but not but not old enough yet to have internalised that. Um, but it is like you know we we I'm, I'm of the age where like you know one would expect you know, in the past people had generally kind of like either settled down, attained financial stability, uh, you know, were proper not just proper grown ups, but kind of like kind of like getting into getting into proper middle age territory. Um, and I don't feel like my generation is necessarily kind of getting to that point of like you know. Uh, financial stability and sustainability, and like everyone still feels quite quite precarious, while also knowing that the kids ten, twenty years younger than me, um, are I've had it far worse because you know they graduated into into you know recession and austerity and so on, and they've got like you know forty grand worth of student debt or whatever it may be, um, and and so it does kind of feel like there is just this huge chunk of the population that feels like quite like politics is not is not doing anything for them. Um, which, to be fair, I think was why why um, Jeremy Corbyn did actually sort of strike a bit of a chord. Like, I was not a fan of, of his Labour leadership at all, to be honest. But I can see why so many younger people sort of energised just by the idea of, like, someone sort of at any point saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if, wouldn't it be great if in some way the economy was a bit fairer than it is now? Um, but I think the, the the difficulty that we face with a lot of this stuff is if you look at the last the last couple of election results, but especially the last one, that Tory majority is built largely on people over sixty. It's a lot of those uh, historic Labour seats that have swung to the Tories in the last couple of electoral cycles. It's because they're basically they're towns that don't really have huge amounts of jobs anymore. So a lot of people kind of get to eighteen, twenty, twenty one, leave and never come back. So a lot of those seats like Hartlepool or Workington, um, they have populations that are older than the national average. 
and and their shifts from Labour to the Tories is 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 explained by that. It's because you know older people are more likely to vote Tory because if you are if you are securely housed, either because you own your own home or because you're in secure social housing, both of which are qualities that you're more likely to have if you're if you're older, and if you're on a fixed income such as a pension, you have very different economic priorities to someone who is you know working for a living. Um, and the Tories have kind of worked out that if they if they just deliver for those people, the the sort of the secure retirees mostly, um, then then they're going to get quite big majorities just because of how the electorate is is distributed around the country, and it is not obvious it is not obvious what what the Labour Party can do to get past this, because. <laughs> I get very frustrated with. Sorry, I'm just ranting at you now. <laughs> no, no, it's great. <laughs> but but I get very frustrated with like some of the, the the class discussions, as if like you know someone someone who you know worked in in a manual industry, uh, but owns their own home or is in secure social housing, they are talked about as if they are the working class, but in the most literal sense, they have different economic interests to to someone from the same background who is currently uh, you know driving for Uber or. or or, or work in a call centre or whatever it is. Uh, and just because they may come from the same kind of background, they still have very, very different economic interests. Uh, and that is totally obscured by the way we talk about class. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, th- there seems to be a thing where... So I assume the Conservative vote is going to die off. Because I mean, I, Isn't it true that there's sort of less members every year simply because they get older and die? And, uh, and th- there's got to be a point where... They just don't have as many people to appeal to it any, anymore. And I, I mean, part of my confusion is why Labour's seems to be targeting or aiming to target some of the same voters that already vote Conservative rather than all the people that might be feeling politically homeless. Yeah, I mean, I think so. So, so on, on the sort of like, aren't the Tories going to die off score? Um, it does worry me a bit that like they've increased their vote share at every election for the last however many years 25 years or something since i think since 97 every election the tories have won a bigger proportion of the vote than they did the one before um and and so that that kind of like blows a bit of a hole in in that theory um because because i used i used to i used to sort of think we could sort of sit back and wait for that and that's clearly not happening the tory party is quite chameleonic it's very good at sort of shifting itself to to appeal to to, to whatever, however it needs to build a, uh, uh, however it needs to construct an electoral majority now, it's quite good at changing to do that, um, which I think is why why Boris Johnson's kind of year zero, if there was no Conservative government before me approach, is actually quite effective for them, because they do just constantly change in a way that Labour is kind of much more tied to its history. Um, so that's 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 one problem there. Um, but also like the idea of like Labour should be appealing to the politically homeless. I don't know, um, because, I mean, one problem with appealing to non-voters is they do tend not to vote. Um, and, and, you know, occasionally there may be elections in which they are, people who have not historically voted do kind of like show up in large numbers, but they're few and far between. Generally speaking, it is a better strategy to kind of be appealing to people who are already engaged in some way. And also, if, if, if Labour can pull votes from the Conservatives, that's not just a Labour vote they're adding, that's a Conservative vote they're taking away. So mathematically, it's not a ridiculous strategy. The difficulty, I think, for the, the, the left at the moment is trying to work out what a platform looks like that, that can kind of energise all the kind of younger, more precarious people we were talking about who are very frustrated politics isn't good enough for them, while also appealing to those kind of older voters who have a very different set of economic interests. And I don't think anybody knows what that platform looks like um i mean i wonder if actually talking about policies and platforms at all is, is the wrong way of thinking about it and like you know we spent 25 years having arguments about blairism um and and you know whether whether tony blair's reforms the labor party were were, were necessary or good or, or terrible or whatever it is i sort of increasingly think that actually blairism is irrelevant i think it's more that like the figure of tony blair himself in the mid nineties, before before he kind of got old and mad, um, when he was like a very charismatic, appealing politician and had ridiculously good personal approval rates, I wonder whether it's actually that it's him who kind of made that happen, rather than the ideas he pushed. 
and the problem is Labour does not currently have that kind of charismatic leader to hand. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with John in a minute, but first... Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! Brexit Fallout! Yeah, I'm sorry about this. Brexit Fallout is back. But just very briefly, while I once again tell you how all the people that said they got a great deal are now angry about the deal that they hadn't actually read. You might have seen, or maybe you purposefully haven't in attempts to keep yourself from sighing so loudly that it knocks cats off walls, that Lord David Frost, that crumpled old duvet of a man, had a big whinge on Twitter about how the EU aren't listening to his demands. Like a failed villain who's asking for billions of dollars for the freeing of a hostage no one has noticed is missing and doesn't really care. Frost is unhappy with, well, all of the agreement that he was previously happy with, but particularly trade barriers between Britain and Northern Ireland that everyone warned him about when he signed the agreement and him and all the Conservatives just pretended wouldn't happen. Oh, and he also wants the oversight of the European Courts of Justice removed. Yes, basically like a whole new agreement and it being part of the current EU-UK trade agreement, not in the withdrawal agreement like the Northern Ireland Protocol is, which means it's already been agreed to. It's like reading the Christmas wish list of a really weird child who's just mainlined on sherbet. Now, the thing is, while the EU have got to consider the benefits for 27 countries, they are willing to be a little bit flexible on the old sausages to Northern Ireland bit, because, you know, if sending bangers over keeps the peace, then it's necessary. But the other bit is a problem. The UK government have said the removal of the ECJ overseeing the process is a red line, which either means it's a barrier or they're travelling along it on a map in an Indiana Jones film. No, sadly, it's definitely the former, as there's no going anywhere as long as that bit is there. Red line means no negotiating on it, which means the negotiations will stall again, which means everyone will get angry and Lord Frost will keep blaming the Brexit-hating French, as he calls them, no doubt trying his best not to follow it with actual racist slurs, and then will trigger Article 16. Maybe. You may remember, or might have repressed it from your mind in order to save your sanity, that Article 16 is a technical term in any Brexit clause that means either the UK or EU can suspend any part of the agreement that, ahem, official voice time, causes economic, societal or environmental difficulties that are liable to persist or diversion of trade. If Frosty does do that, it'll mean the need for a hard border in Ireland and the EU will probably get all legal on the UK government and then who knows what. I mean, I'm hoping a humbling defeat in court for the UK government, but they'll no doubt make us pay the legal costs and then blame no Christmas in 2022 and 23 on the EU instead. The big lesson is, do have a read of the small print before you sign anything. Especially if you've written the small print yourself and gone around telling everyone just how great your small print is. And now, back to John. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I'm gonna. I'm just. I'm incredibly naive about uh, political ideology, despite uh, trying to trying to be good and educated. But a, a big part of me sort of feels like there's a lot of harking back to things that were previous and harking back to previous ways of doing things. And it, it really feels like we're in a very different time right now than we've had before. In that we, you know, we're post Brexit, we're post pandemic. There are all sorts of technology issues. There's automation is an issue. It, it does feel like it's. 
it's not about having things the way before, but there's no real new ideas coming through that say, hang on, <laughs> we need stuff yeah. that's going to deal with, with all of this. And that, that I mean, that I, I sort of expect that to be absent from the Conservatives, but I don't really see anything from Labour, Lib Dems. I mean, the Greens possibly more than, more than any of the others, but yeah, I sort of I think, worry that we're just, uh, you know, tr- reminiscing rather than uh, pushing forward something new. I mean, I get very frustrated with the Greens because they are, um, so, so like, you know, as, as with all political parties are, they're kind of coalitions of different groups, right? Um, but the Greens, there is the kind of thread to them that's kind of like, you know, the, the sort of radical, we need to sort of rethink capitalism because it's destroying the planet, slightly left of Labour kind of Green Party. But there is also a type of Green Party that is challenging the Tories and the Shires that basically just doesn't want to do anything bad to any fields or hurt any trees. Um, and that second Green Party is often quite anti the kind of changes that we might need to modernise the economy. For example, you know, building more homes closer to the places people work or, or building uh, high speed two or whatever it may be. Um, so, so like there are these big ideas there, but they're quite contested, even within the Green Party. Um, but but in but but more broadly, like the Labour Party has a massive problem with like it's constantly arguing about its own history. It is like you know that um you know that um meme of like you know, the distracted boyfriend meme. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like it, it's the Labour Party is constantly being distracted by the Labour Party. Is like and we think we saw that at a conference the other week. It's like it does. It almost doesn't matter which which faction you agree with. They are clearly more interested in beating crap out of each other than they are with taking the fight to the Tories. It's it's sort of the people's front of Judea thing, isn't it? It's just yep. like the left is always more obsessed with beating, uh, with beating other bits <laughs> of the left. But but one of the side effects of this is like there is this constant argument going on over which which year we need to turn the clock back to, <laughs> and like there is part of the there is part of the left that kind of wants sort of like socialism as discussed in the early 80s and there is part of the left that's like no no that's appalling we can't turn the clock back it's still 1994 in here um and it's just but none of them are sort of like looking at the world as it is now um because they're also obsessed with the history it's i'm I'm coming around to the thing you said at the beginning that it's just deeply depressing and we should just all give up (laughs) it is it is different i mean the the it's a weird thing to hope for i suppose uh in it's it's a bleak thing uh, as it is but you know there's part of me that wonders are we just going to see the reality of all the horrors kicking in and then see that reflected in votes i mean we've had i mean i'm I'm completely baffled and can't pretend to understand how we've had now two and a half weeks of fuel shortages and uh food shortages and yet the conservatives still going up or they're still top of the polls but there must be a point where reality kicks in or is this uh are we sort of beyond that now where it doesn't it doesn't matter anymore i mean you would think wouldn't you i mean like given how um you know, people of my, the age of my, my, my parents' generation, like my dad never stopped talking about the winter of discontent on the day he died. He never trusted the Labour Party because of what happened to the economy in 78, 79. You would think that if we are in for a winter like that, which God help us, it looks like we might be, that might have some kind of impact on the Conservative Party's political prospects. But, but there have been so many points where you kind of think like, well, well obviously they're not going to get out of this one. And then they do immediately without any difficulty whatsoever. And stuff just doesn't seem to stick. So, so, and also you don't really want to get into a position where you're kind of hoping that things get really, really bad just so it knocks five points off the Tories poll lead. I mean, that kind of feels like that's, that's maybe not, not the aim of the exercise. Um, but, but yeah, it, it's difficult to see how they can survive a winter of petrol shortages and empty shelves and God help us, maybe you know, some kind of resurgence in, even though we're all jabbed now, um, the hospitals are going to get full from, from the minority of people who are on top of the cases of brick or whatever, aren't they? So it's, you think a really bad winter of the sort it looks like we're in for, that's got to hurt the Tories, right? But, yeah. but so many things that you'd think would have not. So who knows? Yeah, I just, I don't, I, I can't, you know, and it, it is my sort of worry that Labour are simply sort of running on a, well, we're not as shit as them. We we haven't messed things up as much as them platform, you know, which seems like a horrible way to be. But I, I feel like that might be the only way out. But yeah, God knows. I mean, where, where do you, do you have any, it seems like a silly thing to ask in such completely uncertain um, political times and times in general. But do you have any sort of predictions of, of, where things will go. I mean, there was a lot of talk that Boris Johnson was just bored of being prime minister and, and might well leave at some point, but I don't seem to think that's going to happen. 
No. Um, so I have historically, I'm the worst person at predictions in the world. Every time <laughs> I've predicted anything, the opposite has happened. So I'm really tempted to predict that, that the Tories are going to have a really good winter. Everything's going to be fine for them. They're going to become incredibly popular. Um, and nothing bad is going to happen to Boris Johnson at all. There we are. That's what I'm going to predict. I'm going to try and gain it. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, more seriously, after the last five years now, I guess, anyone who has not sort of like reconsidered whether or not predictions are, are, are maybe a mug's game, because like there's been so many things happening that nobody saw coming. And then, like, there is a certain there is a certain type of political commentator who kind of just like doesn't miss a step, doesn't act like who, who just pretends they got everything right all along, and they're all talking shit. None of us know what's going on. Um, so, so I I do think that like it is it is foolish to kind of make too many confident predictions at this stage because there have been so many big surprises. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, I I find it I, I every week I'm both. I sort of fail to be surprised at the level of crap and also am still surprised. <laughs> I think it's it's sort of, yeah, I don't know. It's it's such an odd time. It's a really odd, awful time to write jokes about it as well. Every single week it's either uh, just what you've written the week before doesn't make sense anymore or things are so bleak that it, writing comedy about it is just not the way forward whatsoever. Uh, really. I yeah. mean, I like that old, was, was it Peter Cook who said that he wanted um, his... his a private eye or his comedy club or whatever it was but he said he wanted it to to have the same impact on on british politics as the satirical scene in weimar germany had on on the rise of the nazis (laughs) to to, to preventing the rise of the nazis and i do think like there is because i mean i'm not i'm I'm not a comedian but i'm you can tell from the fact i'm not funny um but i i you know i write columns with jokes in and i think it is it's not the sort of thing we do because we think it's going to make a difference, is it? It's kind of, it's, it's the, it's, it's the joke you tell at a funeral. It's the kind of like pressure valve joke, mm. um, that it can make people feel better in, in dark times, but they don't think it can actually change anything. I just don't think that's how it works. Oh God, no, no, no. I, I am very, very aware that, uh, I don't think comedy is a, a changing, but it is, it's just simply that, uh, I mean, it's been very interesting, even sort of post-pandemic, coming back to gigging. And uh, you might have previously asked people what they do for a living, and some of them don't do anything anymore. The pandemic's changed that. And, you know, now you've got universal credit cuts coming. And so the audience are not in the same state of mind as they as they would have been before. And you, you, you definitely, I mean, I, I always think that startup comedy is a fascinating job in that you get a sort of broad spectrum of the public in your audience and really get a feel for how things are. And uh, there was definitely two months of, wow, people were just excited to go out and that has run out. And now you realise a lot of people are not particularly cheery and uh, gigs suddenly are a lot harder, which is, um, it's great fun. Yeah, yeah. we need a crisis I mean, that well, doesn't affect us, basically. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> But but would that really be a crisis? Yeah, but yeah, I think we're in for we're, we're, we are in for a, a, a difficult winter. So, um, you're right. That's actually a really depressing. That's a really depressing note. I've come out of this less sorry, happy John. than I went in. So, I was so, so sorry. Thank you very so, much. But this is you know this is why we'll, we'll talk about your well, book briefly in a minute. But um, you know your book is very cheery. That's been cheering me up on my, on my cheap journeys home from gigs. Um, but I wanted to before we get that, I wanted to because you know your your knowledge of uh, both housing uh, crisis, which I'm not going to talk to you about because that is really bleak, but also about transport is very good. And one of the things I just wanted uh, to ask you about because it's something that I still can't wrap my head around is um you know we've sort of got a not really renationalizing of the rail that hasn't really happened and we've got the hs2 now is part of it's going to be possibly cancelled and i just wondered are any of these things good or bad is are we are we see you know is, is transport something to be hopeful about or or not at all i mean i think if you're i i think if, if you're taking your your sort of will to live from transport policy then things are pretty <laughs> bad um but but that aside, um, so so it's not quite that we're renationalising the rail network. They are they are changing the way we do it. So histor- so since the nineties, we've had a franchise system where basically like private companies bid for the right to run different bits of the network, um, and they pay the government to set fee for that based on their bids. But then like however much money they make from fares, they keep that. That's where their profit comes from. Uh, and the idea of this was it would encourage uh, rail companies to to invest in better services so they get more passengers. 
as it would also kind of maximise revenue to taxpayer because there'd be kind of competitive bidding processes to get the companies in the first place. Um, as it turns out, there is a limit to the number of people you can get onto the rail network. So, so everybody knows how profitable or not those lines are now. Um, and so nobody's bidding. So we're not getting the competitive thing either. And, and then, and then during the pandemic, the bot, you know, people stopped traveling, the bottom fell out of it. But, but, but already that system had kind of come to the end of its, its, its usefulness, even if you think it was okay in the first place. So, so they are switching over to a system much more like, um, the model under which Transport for London runs the London Overground, where it's basically just, you wouldn't know the Overground is privately run. It just feels like part of the TFL network, but it is run by a private company who is paid a set fee for doing it. And basically like a government body tells them, we want this many trains, we want this frequency of service and for in exchange for which we will pay you this money so 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 it's not full nationalization the state is not going to go back to running trains in the way it did in the british rail days but but the, the state will be kind of actively setting network standards and and it means you won't get this thing where like private companies realize half of the contract they can't make the money they thought and decide to to back out which is what's happened with, with the renationalization we've seen I think that will actually improve the network. I think that it's a better model for running it. Um, but they don't think that's going to magically make the world a better place, unfortunately. No, but, well, I mean, at least if, if trains get a bit better, that's that's one good... <laughs> that's, good. Especially in a I fuel, mean, fuel crisis, that's, we need, yeah, we need pe- trains to be a lot better. We do need, we do need more trains. Um, but, but, sorry, that, that's actually a nice segue, though, because, like, the point of HS2 um, that's kind of been lost in all the talk of, like, you know, how it's going to be... But, the fastest trains in Britain and so on. It's not really about speed. It's about capacity. It's basically that if you build another railway line to put the fast trains on, um, then you can run more slower trains as well. Because if you just think of the mechanics of it, if you've got a line, a natural piece of track shared by a fast route and a, sh- and a slow route, you can't run that many of the slow routes, slow trains, because a fast train will run into the back of it. And that is generally frowned upon in, in the railway world. Um, so, so the point of HS2 is mainly to kind of get the intercity trains out the well of, out of the way of the local ones, so that you can run more local services into cities like Birmingham. Uh, so, it, it will be a massive increase in, in the network's capacity. That is the point of the exercise, and that is why cutting the eastern leg, um, as the government looks like it might be about to do, which would go from Birmingham through to Nottingham, Sheffield, Leeds. That's why that would be a bad thing because it reduces those capacity improvements. Right. So HS two is is sort of in in your mind a good thing because I mean there's so many been so many arguments against it all the way from its CO two levels that it would create in the in the creation of it. it wouldn't you know cut them down in the long term or whatever. And then there was also obviously the cost that seems to forever be going up. And then there's the kind of obviously there's you know people who are worried about their homes and other things that may get destroyed in the in the process of but but generally it's something that the, the country needs is it um i mean i absolutely think so but you know i'm a, I'm a train nerd i would i'm in the tank but i do <laughs> think that i do think that hs2 is it, we just can't run any more trains on certain key bits of the network like the west coast mainline it is literally full and because we use ticket prices to manage demand that means that it's a full network is going to be an expensive network. If we if we build that extra capacity, then it will not only we won't only be able to run more trains; those tickets will be cheaper, so more people will be able to travel by train. There'll be more routes for freight trains, so we get lorries off the roads as well. Um, it should it should actually help in reducing our carbon footprint over the long term. Because if we don't increase capacity in the rail network, more people are going to travel by road, and that is worse. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I still, I, I got to go to Japan in 2015 and I still just often dream of trains like that. It's, it's always when yeah. I look back at it and go, oh, I just, I wish there were trains that apologised for being one second late and ran so <laughs> efficiently. But <laughs> that's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah, and the, the British Rail Network is much like, we're 10 minutes late, fuck you. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a wonderful um, comedian called uh, Yuriko Katani who does a lovely joke about British Rail having, a, it was like a poster about being 97% of our trains run on time how she assumes it was a, an apology she's Japanese she thought they were, were apologising <laughs> which is just very funny it's absolutely brilliant um, John thank you for thank you for chatting about politics um, listen your book is, is genuinely uh, cheering me up a, a lot at the moment and I should say to, to listeners that there is a bit in your book that is about politics and history um, 
I mean, which is sort of atrocities in the past, which is nicer to read about than atrocities now, I think. <laughs> it's probably the best way yeah. to put it. Um, but it, it's such... Also it's also acceptable to make jokes about ones in the past as well. Like you can't really get away with that. With the that is true. That is true. That is true. But it is, it's a very funny book and it's really lovely and a nice nice bit of escapism from all the current times. So thank you for coming on and talking about awful current times uh, <laughs> to, to make people hopefully retreat to your book as a, as a, a nice way to avoid it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And um, please, I, I hope everyone listening will feel inspired to get by, by the depressing things I've said to to buy a copy of my book <laughs> for, the, for the relative you want to depress this Christmas, even though it's a much happier book than the things I've just said. Well, that's it. It's like your predictions. Your predictions being wrong. If we're, This is sort of anti-marketing for your book that we're, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're going to work in reverse. Yeah. Do not do not buy my book. Do not go to Waterstones and ask where my book is. Do not do not buy it forever. You know, for Christmas. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, John. It was lovely speaking to John again, and his new book, which has very little to do with politics, thankfully, is called The Compendium of Not Quite Everything, All the Facts You Didn't Know You Wanted to Know. And uh, I've just been really enjoying it. It's a really fun and fascinating read. Uh, you can buy it in all the book places, but I'll pop a link in the pod blurb anyway, just in case, I don't know, you can't possibly fathom the idea of a bookshop existing. Uh, there is also a podcast that accompanies the book called The Podcast of Not Quite Everything that you should definitely check out. Uh, the latest episode has astrophysicist Hino Falk talking about black holes, and it is great fun. Um, and you can also find John on Twitter at John, J-O-N-N-Ellidge, at his substack, john.substack.com, and his articles, which do have politics in them, at the New Statesman, The Guardian, and absolutely loads of other places too. Right, look, I know I mentioned this earlier and I ask this every week, but any thoughts on guests would be super helpful right now, particularly on subjects to talk to people about, um, and then I will scurry through the internet with some direction as to who to bother. If you've got any thoughts on potential Parpolboro guests or Parpolboro guests, no, that doesn't really work, does it? Well, I'm never going to say it again. Then do get in touch at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> And that is it for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. I hope you gleaned even an iota of joy from these audio parps. And if you did, why not make the least effort possible to brighten someone else's life with all the force of a dying bulb by recommending that they give it a listen too. Perhaps even join the patreon.com forward slash bro and fling money to help make this show. Or if you so desire, pop a nice review about it on Apple Podcasts or similar podholes. Big cheers to Acast, my brother last skeptic and cat day. And this will be back next week when Lord David Frost is forcefully removed from a supermarket after having a tantrum that his mum isn't listening to his demands because he wanted six bags of sausages, not one. Bye. This week's show was sponsored by Also Complete Speeches for MPs. Do you need a speech written that contains absolutely no policies? Well then, at Auto Complete Speeches, we have a meeting with our friends that all our kids are coming to us tomorrow, so not sure what time we are coming to the park now, so we can park run in the park and 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 park run in the park. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.